Good morning, everybody. I know that, uh, Trevor, you and I, uh, we meet weekly. We discuss the upcoming uh, services and sermons. Um, but rarely do I ask Trevor to uh, play a certain song. And this is no exception this week. Yet, at the same time, it just seemed like every song that we sang fits perfectly the text that we're going to be looking at this morning. And I, and I trust that you will see that. So um, last week, we uh, finished the book of Malachi. And next week, of course, we have our Thanksgiving praise service that we're really looking forward to. And then following that, we have our Advent series that we'll be going through. So to borrow a football analogy, today's a bye week. And so uh, as I was thinking about Thanksgiving coming up, you know, I just, my mind has just been going um, on to things that I'm so thankful for. And the text that we're going to be looking at this morning is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. I, I am not going to be able to do it justice this morning, but I, I want you to uh, see my heart in it, why I'm so grateful, but, but I also want you to see God's heart for you. Because I think if we see the Father heart of God in our text this morning, it will produce in you the same kind of gratitude uh, that I have for what God has done for me. And so, um, uh, so that's where we're going to go uh, this morning. Before we get there, um, many of you uh, know that my d eldest daughter uh, got married this past year. And uh, that was kind of a, a bittersweet moment for me, you know, kind of sad and happy at the same time. I, w I was happy for her, but I was sad that she was no longer Patricia Detoma. She is now Patricia Busby. Busby. <laughs> Hope you're watching there, guys. Um, her, her name doesn't make a sentence anymore. Um, and some of you know this story. Most of you, you don't. But my name actually makes a sentence. Uh, Paul Leo de Toma. It literally means the little lion of Thomas. And when um, we knew we were going to have Patricia, uh, I desperately wanted to make a sentence for her. And so I racked my brains for the longest time. And it just happened to be Patricia, which is her grandmother's name. Um, we went with Patricia Lee, the feminine form for Leo. And her name means the noble lioness of Thomas. I have no idea what Busby means. <laughs> but I'm not sure it makes a sentence, you know. But all of that was kind of going through my mind um, as she was, you know, getting married, and the reality hit me that um, my little girl is all grown up. But the truth is, all my kids are grown up. Uh, my son's going to be 21 next month, and my middle daughter is going to be 23 in March, and it's just hard to believe you know, that's why every time I see a parent with a newborn child, I tell them, don't blink, because it goes by so fast, and you don't realize how fast it goes by, but, but I, I remember um, so many things in their lives, things that I was excited about. I remember, um, you know, it just seems like yesterday, they, they couldn't crawl, you know, and then you see them crawling. For, first, they roll over, and then they crawl. I remember them taking their first steps, how excited I was. Um, I remember um, them learning to ride a bike. 
um, and uh, helping them to do that and, and letting go with that final push and watching them wobble, you know, and sometimes falling down, getting scrapes and, and such. I remember teaching them how to drive. That was a scary moment. <laughs> scary but special at the, at the same time. And, and so the point is, is, as a parent, I cherish the memories that I have of my kids at the various stages of their lives. Um, and I'm even happy and, and ex- to think about the not-so-happy times, you know, the times when there's hurts and disappointments and such, because that's a part of growing up. And we all have to learn those things. There are lessons to be learned in them, and if we learn them well... It will serve us well down the road. So as much as as I cherish the memories of those earlier years, I can honestly say that at this juncture of my life, it gives me great joy to see my kids growing up. I think God's like that. I think God, when he looks at us, takes great joy in the steps that we take to become more like Jesus. First of all, Scripture tells us that there is great joy in the presence of the angels in heaven over one sinner who repents the 99 people who don't need to repent. Of course, it doesn't mean they don't need to repent, but that's a sermon for another day. But I got to be thinking What do you mean in the presence of the angels? I mean, who else is in the presence of the angels, you know, but God and, and of course, those who are saved? And and I understand that to me is is that God is the one who expresses great joy in our salvation when we are born again into his family. God gets excited about our first steps of faith, He gets excited about our discovery of the riches of his word and even our feeble attempts to please him. You know, I I, I know of no parent that when a child is trying to do something helpful, even when they make a mistake, even when they break the thing, you know, you, you can't be angry. You can't be disappointed. They're trying to do something nice for mom, for dad. And I think God is the same way. I believe God gets excited about his children even when we fall flat on our face trying to serve him because we can't do it perfectly. The only perfect person who ever lived was Jesus. But we strive to honor him by the way that we live. Unfortunately, I think many people... Don't view God like this. I think many people view God as as a harsh taskmaster who is just there waiting to crush you the first time you mess up. I know that's that's how I felt growing up. But the, the truth is, he's mindful that we are but dust. You realize that we are dust. That he breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. And so I think we have to back up just a little bit and ask ourselves, well, where did we get our first impression of God? For many of us, it came from our fathers. At least that's what I'm told. And if that's true, then it's no wonder that growing up, I did not feel loved by God. 
See, growing, I, a lot of you know, I, I grew up, I was adopted. My sister was adopted. There's no doubt in my mind now my parents loved me. But at the time, I didn't feel loved. There were many times I did not feel loved. In fact, I don't remember my dad ever telling me that he loved me until I was 25 years old. And he told me with his back to me as he was heading out the door to go to work. And he nearly choked on those words. My dad didn't go to my ball games. And it left me feeling wounded. And I felt like I had to work even harder to try to please him, to earn his love. And I believe that carried over into my view of God. You know, especially the church that I grew up in, you know, you walk in, you have these huge statues. I mean, Jesus does not look happy on that cross. You know, and all the other statues, you know, the angels with, you know, their spears in their hands and stuff. I mean, God was frightening. And, 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 and the concept of him being loved was, was foreign to me. And, and so you begin to try to earn his love by doing certain things, hoping that your good works outweigh your bad works and such. Well... I think some of you can relate to that, probably. I think there are numerous people who sit in services like this who feel the same way. And you may even be a Christian. You may know the Lord and still wrestle with whether or not God loves you just as you are. You might be able to quote the scriptures, but you don't feel God's love. Now, just because we don't feel it doesn't mean it's not real. In the same way, I look back now and I realize my mom and dad, they loved me. Had a difficult time at times showing it. I had a difficult times seeing it. But as they say, sometimes perception is reality. And that was my reality. So this morning, I guess I want to throw out to you a, a, a thesis of sorts that Unless we are convinced in our heart that God loves us and delights in even our tiniest attempts to please him, we will never fully enjoy him or the Christian life. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this opportunity to, to open up your word to allow it to encourage us. Lord, I thank you for how this text has spoken to me over the years, how it continues to speak to me. And Father, I pray that we would walk away from it this morning with a deeper understanding, appreciation of your great love for us. Holy Spirit, be our teacher and our God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Zephaniah um, is not a fun book to read. If you've never read it before, uh, it's, a, it's a difficult book full of, of harsh things, um, rebukes that God has for his people. Now, the, the prophet himself was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah uh, during the reign of Josiah between 640 and 609 B.C., 
Now, the northern kingdom of Israel had already been carted off into captivity. They're, they're in Assyria. Judah is the lone remaining tribe. And as such, they kind of took on the name Israel. The northern tribe was Israel, made up of the other tribes. Judah was by itself. But, but when we read in Zephaniah and in other books, uh, God's reference to the, to the nation of Israel, to Israel, he is speaking about his people collectively and specifically the people of Judah here. And uh, sometimes, by the way, because somebody brought this up to me not too long ago, sometimes you'll hear me say Judea and you got confused. Judea is actually the way the Romans and the Greeks referred to Judah. So they used a different pronunciation, if you would, or spelling. So Judah, Judea. Now, Zephaniah's main objective here was to help the people see their sin and repent of it so as to avert judgment. And the book of Zephaniah is made up of commands and warnings and promises and the warnings and the promises were to be the incentive for the people, you know, to take it to heart that if you do this, this is what's going to happen. If you don't do this, you know, and you do this, then this is what will happen. And it's unfortunate because even though the prophet tells them what they need to hear, they don't hear it. They reject it. They refused to obey. And judgment is now inevitable. Now, Zephaniah ends his prophecy with a word of hope. And I always like that. I like hope. And he gives us a glimpse into the future, specifically in verses 14 through 17, where the faithful remnant will once again rejoice. That judgment will be long gone, and they will be in right standing with God. And their fears will give way to shouts of praise. So Zephaniah writes here as if the promises of God have already come to pass. He states them as a fact. But the most amazing thing, I think, about these verses is that it reveals the heart of God in an unbelievable way. So let's take a look at it. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Zephaniah chapter 3 in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets. Uh, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, verse 14 through 17. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Now, up until the second half of chapter 3, the book has really been one blistering rebuke after another. And God now he urges his people to look ahead to what he's going to do for them. And he speaks a day about a day when they will rejoice. Now, this is not a momentary celebration, you know, like one of the festivals, you know, where it comes and goes. Actually, he is speaking about this as a way of life, that their rejoicing will be never-ending, 
And though the people were headed towards certain judgment, verse 15 here reminds us that there is hope. That there is always hope. And God makes some incredible promises to them. Promises that reveal his heart, not only to the people of Israel, but to us as well. You see, there are a lot of similarities between us and the people of Israel. We too, we're going our own way, doing our own thing, pursuing our own desires. We too, we're under God's judgment and wrath. Scripture says there is none righteous. No, not one. And that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. What is more, the Bible says that God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God is a righteous God, a holy God, and he must punish Sin. But God, says Paul, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. See, there's always hope. We're, we're not too much different than the people of Israel. God sent his son to die on the cross to take away our sin, to restore us to right relationship with him. And that's really, in essence, the promise that God is making to the people here. If you look at verse 15, I think we can see God's heart in several different ways. First, um, here, it is revealed in his mercy. If you look at the verse, it says, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Now, God promises to take away his judgments, but for him to do that, it necessitates that he takes away our sin, that he removes our sin, that he forgives us of our sin. See, God doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. He doesn't wake up one day and all of a sudden say, you know, I'm in a good mood today. I'm going to let you guys all into my heaven. That's cool. No, God is just as well as loving. He's righteous as well as merciful, and he must deal with sin. Otherwise, he wouldn't be just. Well, the Bible tells us that our judgment, our sins, were nailed to the cross. They were taken away at the cross. That's why Paul could write in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, that he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Then in Romans 8, he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we see God's heart for us in his mercy, but we also see God's heart for us in his protection. He has cleared away your enemies. God's people will always have enemies. But in Zephaniah's day, most of their enemies were instruments of God's judgment against the people. So his promise to clear away the enemies is really synonymous with his clearing away of their judgments. But it's also a picture of the cross. If we can go to the second point. Um, 
it, it's a picture of the cross where Satan was defeated. And it's also a picture of the day when Satan, the great deceiver and the enemy of our souls, will once and for all be turned back. But until that day, until that day, we have God's promises. Consider what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5. God's power protects you through your faith until salvation is shown to you at the end of time. We have God's protection. And one of my favorite verses is in Romans where it says, if God is for you, who can be against you? I mean, if God is on your side, who can touch you? You're one of the untouchables. Nothing can touch your life unless it first is filtered through the hand of God. And if it's filtered through the hand of God, then it's good for you. God is allowing it for a reason. Now, God's heart for us is revealed not only in his mercy and in his protection, but also we see it's revealed in his presence. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. And, and again, this, I just was thinking about the songs that, that we were singing. And how I, God is with us. We have the promise of his presence. Now, you have to understand, these are the very people who turned their back on God. They stiff-armed him. Said, we don't want to have anything to do with you. They, they were living in disobedience. And yet God promises that he would restore them to himself. What a beautiful picture. What a wonderful promise. So try to imagine the king of kings, right? The king of Israel, the king of glory, who you turned your back on, invites you into his presence. But this king is not a vengeful, angry king that we have to fear. But he's a loving, merciful, and gracious king who delights in us. Verse 16. On that day... It shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. On that day refers to the day when Israel's judgments will be taken away and his blessings will be manifested completely. But for those of us who are in Christ, the promise is already fulfilled. And we sang about that too this morning. God came to earth to be with us. I mean, think about that. The God of the universe, which is far beyond our comprehension to be able to understand the, how big it is, yet God created it all, comes to earth to be with his creation. Matthew tells us as much in chapter 1. When the angel says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means 
God with us. Jesus is our Emmanuel. Despite our sin and our rebellion, God took the initiative to come to earth to rescue us from our sin so that we might enjoy his presence forever. Do you understand the significance of that for our worship? This morning, as as we sing, we're not singing to the walls. We're not singing back to the worship team. We're not really even singing to each other. Oh, that's a byproduct. We're singing to God. He hears us, and, he, and it's not like he hears us from afar. He is present with us. He is in this place. The promise of his presence is so important, it's mentioned twice in these verses. Verse 15 and verse 17 again. Look at verse 17. It says, the Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save. I like the New American Standards translation. It says, a victorious warrior. The picture God is a victorious warrior. If you don't like that, the New Living Translation says, a mighty savior. He is a mighty savior. Jesus is our warrior, savior, king. And he went to the cross and he died for our sins. And three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating the power of sin and death. So now, the way I think is, if Satan couldn't beat him, if death couldn't hold him, if the grave couldn't keep him, then those who belong to him have nothing to fear or be afraid of. He fought the battle and he won the war. Now, it gets better. For those of us who have been redeemed, God is not only with us. He is in us by his spirit. If you have been born again by the spirit of God, then Christ lives in you. He lives in me. Think of the implications of that for your life. That you have God within you. When you go to work, when you go to school, when you're at home, when you're amongst your neighbors and friends, God is with you and he is in you. So having God's mercy, protection, and his presence ought to be enough for all of us to rejoice, right? But there's more. There's more. There's another reason for celebration, and it's the one that probably means the most to me. You see, God's heart for us is also revealed to us in his affection for us. This this just blows me away. God is not an unaffectionate, distant Father, who only shows up to correct us when we go off the rails. Speaking of us as God's children, Zephaniah tells us these things. First, he will rejoice over you with gladness. I mean, let me say that again. He, God, will rejoice over you 
with gladness. The New American Standard says, he will exalt over you with joy. The NIV says, he will take great delight in you. Is that how you feel? God delights in you? That he rejoices over you? I can tell you, for a kid who desperately wanted his dad to be proud of him, these verses were life-changing. My heavenly father loves me? Really? You know how freeing that is? That I don't have to perform? I don't have to try to do something to earn his love, to get his attention, to get him to notice me? He says he delights in me. And he delights in you. So much so that he rejoices over us. Not only does he do that, we're told that he will quiet you by his love. And I'm not sure exactly what that means. There's some ambiguity here. The New Living Translation says, with his love, he will calm all your fears. The New American Standard says that he will be quiet in his love. But it's the third one, the third thing that he says that really gets me in. And that is, he will exalt over you with loud singing. With loud singing. New American Standard says, he will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Now, am I the only one or is that hard for us to imagine? Is that your picture of God? It, it, it wasn't mine. And, and I had a hard time wrapping my, my mind around God singing and shouting over me in a positive way. I mean, now I can kind of look down. I, I can kind of imagine God looking down from heaven, seeing what I'm doing, endeavoring to try to live for him, please him. And he's just up there going, Go! Go, yeah, that's it, that's it, you got it. Go, no, not that, get over, yeah, go, yes. Woo, touchdown. Less the touchdown part. But, but, but that, that appears to be what the scripture is saying here. You see, unlike many of us, God has no problem showing emotion. God has no problem expressing his joy. He has uninhibited Joy, true joy. Now, now, here's a thought. If all God had to do was speak and the world came into existence, what happens when he sings and shouts? And what's even more incredible is that the Hebrew word translated exalt is so rich, it's really hard to put into words. We use the word exalt uh, and that's about as close as we can get. It means to express great joy, to shout in exaltation. Get this, to leap for joy, to go in a circle or do pirouettes or to dance for joy. Again, I ask, is that your picture of God? 
Perhaps the closest thing we get to this in the New Testament is from the story of the prodigal son. And you're familiar with the story. The prodigal, once he left, he took his inheritance, he squandered it, he realized this is not going well for me. He decides to come back home. He's trying to figure out what is he going to say to dad so that he'll take him in as one of his hired hands. And his father sees him from a distance. Do you remember? And what the scripture says is that so he got up, the father got up, took the initiative. He, and while his son was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. What an amazing picture of God. And then, of course, he threw a big party. Again, God is a joyful God. He loves to sing and shout, especially when we repent of our sins and when we respond to him by faith. Luke chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus said this, and I've alluded to it already, that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So God gets happy. God is a God of joy. I love what John Piper said. He said this, he says, God himself, the judge, put Christ forward as our substitutionary sacrifice. And when we trust him, God welcomes us with bells on. He puts a, a ring on our finger, kills the fatted calf, throws a party, shouts a shout that shakes the end of creation and leads in the festal dance. That's the God we serve. And I think the only thing that gets God more excited than people trusting is in his son is when they start living like his son. I think God gets even more excited about that. So as I was thinking about, you know, this Thanksgiving, this is what I'm thankful for. And it's humbling to think that God in his mercy and grace has chosen to not only save me, but then to work in me and through me for his glory, to make me like his son. And that he delights in even my feeble attempts to please him. I want to ask why. Why me? Why you? Why has God set his affection on us? I don't understand, but I'm so glad he did. So it shouldn't surprise us that God gets excited over us. What should surprise us is that we don't get as excited over him. And this morning, the songs that we sang, I just, I, I knew what I was going to be talking about. And I, I didn't look at the lyrics on these, on these songs. I, I, I did search for, for one here, uh, yeah, the, the Save My Soul. That one says, uh, I was lost when you came for me, held in chains by the enemy. You broke them in victory. Now I'm free. I'm free. 
And uh, I could go back and we could sing all those songs again. I'd be fine with it. So, um, so what should be our response to all of this? I'm going to try to keep it real simple. Um, what should be our response? Well, I think, first of all, we need to allow the truths of God's word, what we've looked here this morning, to penetrate our hearts, to really penetrate our hearts. If you're here this morning and you are not yet a child of God, you can feel the Father's love today, right now, because he is in this place. And he's only a prayer away. Just admit to him what he already knows, that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and that you're willing to turn from your sin and to receive Christ into your life as your Lord and Savior. You don't need to be on an endless search for love and significance because it's found in Christ. And church, for you, remember what I said earlier, unless we are convinced in our heart that God loves us, and delights in even our tiniest attempts to please him. We'll be miserable. We will never enjoy him or the Christian life as God intended it to be lived. So we must continue to marvel at and to bask in the love of God in Christ. Let it transform you. Let it cause you to rejoice. And remember verse 14. That's really your application. Shout for joy. O daughter of Zion, shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Church, let us rejoice with all of our heart. May his love overwhelm us. May his joy captivate us. And may we all live as beloved children of the King. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word to us. But most importantly, Lord, I thank you for your great love for us. Lord, you could have put us on the shelf so many times, but you didn't. You could have put your people of, of Israel away and, and never offered them any hope, but you didn't. And so, Lord, knowing that you sent Jesus to go to the cross for our sins, that we might be forgiven and brought into your family, Lord, would you help us now, even now, as we close the service, to rejoice with all our heart and to praise you from this day forward. And forevermore, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.